Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Mark chapter 16. We come to the conclusion of Mark's account of the life of Jesus Christ. We'll see two things tonight. First of all, Christ's victory over the grave, and then his victory over the globe. We're going to see how Christ changes a ragtag group of losers into an effective army of winners. How does God change a man? In fact, let me ask you a couple of questions tonight as we begin. What is it that limits your life tonight? What is it that seems immovable to you? What obstacle, what hang-up, what thing in your past, what failure that is behind you? What is it that pulls you down? As someone said, sometimes as we get older in our faith, and we get older physically, our vision is limited by the medicine bottles on the shelf of our horizon. We kind of get caught up in what we can't do. Is there something that's limiting you tonight? Keeping you from being all you intended to be? Or are you at a point in your life where you look in the mirror and think, you know, I thought I'd be further along. I thought I would be different. I thought there would be something about me more unique at this point in my life. Having known the Savior as long as I've known Him, I thought it would have been different by now. What is it that's become immovable to you? What is it that you can't shake? Something that you can't get over? Some sense of inadequacy that's got you pulled down? A deeper question is this. Do you believe it can be any different? Do you believe that it can be any different? Those must have been questions that were going through the disciples' minds. For they felt limited, they felt defeated, they felt that there was an immovable object against them. Christ was dead. There was no hope. All that they had given themselves to for three years was now vanished and gone out the window. And they wondered, would it ever be any different? In fact, it seemed like the only thing to do was to go to the tomb and put some perfume on his body and give him a decent burial and then go on with their lives and just kind of make the best of things. Can it ever be any different? Here were people who were looking on themselves as losers. They could not believe what the religious leaders had done. More than that, they could not believe what they had failed to do. That they had failed to stand up for Christ. That they had failed to be with Him at the hour that He needed them the most. And so we pick up in chapter 16, in verse 1, and I want us to see how Jesus Christ begins the process of turning losers into winners. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe. And they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he said to you. Now here are people, these ladies are going to the tomb and they have no thought in their mind of the resurrection. Although in just a moment the angel of the Lord is going to remind them that he is there in Galilee just as he said to you, he's going to remind them that he has spoken to them of the resurrection. They don't have resurrection in mind. They have a decent burial in mind the anointing of the body of Christ. And yet there's this insurmountable barrier, a stone, a huge rock. Who's going to move it? How will it be taken care of? And when they get there, it's already taken care of. A power that they could not understand, that they had not experienced, had taken care of the obstacle that kept them from doing what they needed to do. The impossible became possible. And they were able to go in into the tomb where Jesus' body had lay. And it says in verses 5 and 6, they were amazed. That is a compound verb. It means that they were greatly fearful and agitated. They were terrified. They were amazed. Now, notice what the angel says to them. Don't be amazed. Don't be terrified. Don't be fearful. Don't be agitated. In fact, if you pick up in verse 6, you'll find that he gives them and reminds them of three promises. First of all, he says, He is risen. Secondly, He's gone before you. And thirdly, you'll find Him just as He said to you. He's risen. He has gone before you, and you will find Him just as He said to you. Jesus Christ gave victory over the grave. And if Christ can have victory over the grave, then he has victory over whatever obstacle or impossibility it is that keeps you and I from being all that God designed us to be. If death and the grave is no problem for him, then your sense of inadequacy, your problem, your frustration, your obstacle is no problem for him. He is risen. Now, there have been a lot of theories about the resurrection of Christ. Some say that the Jews stole the body. Well, if they had stolen it, when Christianity began to spread, they would have produced it. Some say the disciples stole the body and hid it so that they could carry on the missionary venture that Christ had given them. That doesn't make any sense because when somebody threatens to kill you for believing in the resurrected Christ, you're going to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's not really resurrected. We just made it up because it was a good job. It's not real. It's not true. In fact, I can take you and show you where the body is buried. But Jesus Christ was risen. And one of the things I think that you and I need to remember when we talk to people who do not know Christ is when they say, well, I've just got a problem with this resurrection thing. I've just got a problem with believing that Jesus Christ could be raised from the dead. Just ask them a question. What happened to the body? How do you explain 
that the only leader of a religious movement in the history of the world where there is nobody in a tomb is Christianity. How do you explain that after 2,000 years with people who have hated Christ, who sought to destroy Him, you know that if the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees could have come up with a body, they would have. You know that they sent their best people out searching for it. You know that Rome wanted to find that body because there was turmoil in the Roman Empire because of what the kingdom of God was doing in their empire. You know that the enemies of Christ wanted to find a body, but they couldn't find it. It's amazing to me how people have a problem with the resurrection of Jesus and have no problem believing that Elvis is alive. <laughs> have you ever thought about that? I mean, you'll meet somebody this week and they'll read the front of one of those papers in the grocery store where some baby weighs 942 pounds and is six weeks old and aliens land on somebody else and it just you, all that kind of stuff. And they'll read that and say, boy, can you believe it? You know what I read in the paper this week? And you tell them, you know what? God came in the form of a man. He was all God. He was all man. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross to pay the price for your sins. And he rose from the grave. And they say, I just don't know how you could believe that. And yet they will believe the strangest stuff on the face of this earth. I like what Ivor Powell said. He said, Christianity invites investigation. If heaven needed to advertise its product, the empty tomb would be sufficient. There are other religious systems on earth where exponents of their doctrines proudly draw attention to the graves of ancient leaders. Christians point to a tomb, but it is empty. Its only occupant is gone. Now, the disciples had two problems. First of all, they did not at this point recognize the fact of the resurrection. They did not recognize the fact of the resur resurrection. Secondly, they did not realize the power of the resurrection. Now, pick up, if you would, in verse 8. They did not recognize the fact of the resurrection. They did not realize the power of it. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now look at verse 11. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Now verse 11 is a reference to the disciples. Verse 12. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them. Now, you know that that reference is a reference to the two that he saw on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. He, Mark refers to it. It says he appeared in a different form than he had appeared to Mary. He appeared in a different form to the two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. And afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. <clears throat> now, they didn't recognize the fact. They didn't realize the power. You see what needed to happen in the disciples is that the resurrection of Christ had to take place within them. Here these three ladies come back and say, Christ is risen. And the disciples say, oh, get out of here. You know, this, is a, this is old news. Nothing good's happened. Just let us sit here and have our pity party. 
The two come back 11 miles from the road to Emmaus. They run all the way to the disciples and say, We have seen him. He is risen. And the disciples say again, We don't believe you either. You folks are just trying to conjure up a dream. You're having a, a wish. You're hoping against hope. None of this is going to pan out. It's all over for us. The only thing we're worried about now is if the next knock at the door will be the religious leaders coming to kill us too. Lloyd Ogilvy, a great Presbyterian preacher in California, says, He blasted open the tomb of their hopelessness. He rolled away the stone of their resistance and made it possible for them to realize he was alive. Now, I'm sure there was some discussion going on among the disciples about whether or not Jesus was alive when he showed up. And it says that Jesus showed up and he rebuked them, reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. Now here's what Jesus did in those moments and those days following the resurrection. He appeared to Mary. For Mary he rekindled her spirit, which had been discouraged. Here was Mary who had given her life to following Jesus, who had been saved, forgiven of her sins, and he rekindled her spirit, which had been discouraged. You know what the resurrection of Christ does? It gives people with broken hearts and broken spirits hope. Then he appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus, and he restored their hope. We don't have time to look at it tonight, but... In Luke chapter 24, they were downtrodden and discouraged. They were walking and they were defeated and one appeared with them and began to explain to them the Scriptures and then they realized that it was Christ and He restored their hope which had been gone. But then He appeared to the disciples in verse 14 and He renewed their faith. He renewed their faith. These men who had all said just a few days before, we'll die for you, we'll go with you. Peter who had said, I'll die for you, I'll never deny you. Notice what the angel said. Go find the disciples and Peter. Ever wondered why he said that? Because Simon Peter had really lost his faith. He was discouraged, he was defeated, and he needed a word to know that God still loved him individually. He rekindled their faith. God's victory over the grave gave to the disciples what they could have never had on their own. Secondly, there is victory over the globe. Now, here's an incredible assignment to an incompetent group of men. I mean, there are no more incompetent groups of men than you can find in these disciples. Verse 15, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Verse 16, He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. If they drink any deadly poison, it shall not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. 
And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. <clears throat> now, we come to one of the most discussed passages in all the Gospels. In the oldest manuscripts that are available to us, verses 9 through 20 do not appear. In fact, the little thing that is in parenthesis at the end of verse 20 really appears at the end of verse 8 in some manuscripts. This is what is called textual criticism. Textual criticism is something that we use to gather together the oldest manuscripts and put them together and compare them so that we can come up with the most accurate translation of Scripture that we can possibly come up with. The oldest translations that we have, the oldest editions of manuscripts that we have, rather, do not contain verses 9 through 20. But the earliest translations, the Coptic translation, the Latin translation, those translations contain these words. Now, there's a lot of confusion. I think it's in King James and New American Standard. I do not think that it's included in New International Version. But in New American Standard and in King James, it is included. So let's just pretend that we'll just read it just like the Apostle Paul did out of King James, and we'll just go with it for right now. That's a joke for some of you who hadn't been here. Huh? <clears throat> Let me just make a couple of statements about these verses. These verses contain truths that are found elsewhere in the Scriptures. Most of them found in other Gospels. So nothing is added if you include these verses. Now, you can go with the oldest manuscripts and say, these do not exist, they're not a part of the inerrant Word of God, and so we're going to remove them to the side, as some translations do. Or you can stay with King James and with New American Standard and you can include these verses. Nothing is found in these verses that basically is not found in other Gospels or in the Epistles or in Acts. Secondly, no major doctrine is changed by including these verses. So since the evidences in other Gospels and in Acts... And since no major doctrine is changed, when you properly interpret these verses, whether Mark wrote them, whether Simon Peter dictated them to Mark to write, or whether they were added at a later date, if you properly interpret them in light of all other Scripture, they are in harmony with the rest of Scripture. They do not violate the other three Gospels or the account of the growth of the church in the book of Acts. Now, in verses 17 through 20... He uses a key phrase, and remember, you've got to interpret everything in context. These signs will accompany those who have believed. Now, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to people that did not have the New Testament. In fact, Mark's gospel is the earliest gospel that's written, probably the earliest book that was written. They did not have a copy of the New Testament scriptures. He is speaking primarily in this passage to the apostles, those who had seen the resurrected Christ, the disciples of Christ, who we later came to know as apostles 
and Paul became an apostle because he saw the resurrected Christ. These signs were given to them. These promises were given to them to confirm their message. They were not given to them for any other reason except to confirm that they had believed. Now notice what happens. And by the way, and you probably don't want to write this in your Bible, but verses 17 through 20 is not a license for stupidity. Okay, it's in there for a reason. Now, let's just go down the list. <clears throat> They'll be able to cast out demons. Did the apostles cast out demons, yes or no? Yes. They'll be able to speak in tongues. Now, the word tongues there is translated the word for new languages. Did the apostles speak in new languages? Yes, they did. They'll be able to take up serpents. Isn't that what Paul did in the last chapter of Acts? He took up a serpent. So that became true. We know at least in the life of Paul the Apostle that it was true. They'll be able to drink deadly poison. Now, we don't know if that's true or not. That's the only one in the list that we don't know about. But I guess if you drink deadly poison and it doesn't kill you, you may not know it. Does that make sense? And then he says, They'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Did the apostles lay hands on the sick and did they recover? Yes. So what we've got, by the way, <laughs> lay hands on the sick and they shall recover is a far cry from faith healers today. Because when the apostles did it, they never laid hands on somebody and said, mm, must have lost my power this time. You see, there were no limitations with the apostles. They could heal anybody of anything if God led them to do that. There were no limitations. All of these were characteristic of the, of the apostles. Now, I want you to turn to two verses of Scripture that back up this passage, whether it is in the oldest manuscript or not, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, and Hebrews chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, and Hebrews chapter 2. Second Corinthians twelve twelve. Found it? The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Hebrews chapter two, verse four. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. Now, there are people that want to take these that are listed in verses 17 through 20 and they want to use them as signs to authenticate... Authenticate? Authenticate? Where did I come up with that? It's late. Authenticate their ministry. But if you take one of the five, you've got to take them all. Jesus did not make these multiple choice. If you're going to take tongues then you've got to walk out and find some deadly snakes and get a bottle of poison. 
If you're going to take one as a sign of the validity of your ministry, then you must take them all. Does that make sense? Jesus did not isolate one and say, some of you get this one and some of you get that one and some of you will get this one over here. And in the last 19 centuries, these signs have been rarely seen most often have been seen in backward cultures and in third world countries where there were limited access to the gospel, to the written word of God, and signs accompanied situations where the limited access to the word of God kept people from being able to read and understand the written scripture. Now, if this promise was made for all believers for all times, then all of us would have all of it. It's that simple. You and I would walk out of here and we'd just go get us a big old vat of snakes and we'd just play around in them. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? You do it, we're going to move your church letter somewhere, I guarantee. <laughs> Put the passage into context and it simply is a sign, a confirmation to those who would preach the gospel as apostles that God would take care of them. Now, the greatest historical proof of the resurrection has to be in the resurrected disciples. Here were cowards who became courageous. Here were men who were timid who became triumphant. They were inept and they became men who were able to do the impossible. And the key word in this passage is in verse 16. It is the word believe. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now, there are whole denominations that take Mark 16, 16 and say you have to be baptized to be saved. Read the verse. He who has believed and is baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved... Any word there about baptism? No. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. The main thought of verse 16 is on belief, not on baptism. Baptism does not confer salvation. It confirms salvation. You and I do not get salvation conferred on us by being sprinkled or immersed or dipped or plunged or anything else. It is merely a confirmation that we have believed. It is an outward act that demonstrates what's happened inside of us. The key word is believe. He did not say, he who is not baptized shall be condemned. If that's true, then the thief on the cross was lied to. What do you do if you win somebody to faith in Christ in Ethiopia where there's a drought? and they cannot be baptized. And yet they believe in Jesus Christ, ask Him to come into their heart as Lord and Savior, but there's no water to drink or to bathe in, much less to be baptized in. Does that person have salvation? Yes. Why? Because the word, the key word, is believe. He that believes. If you disbelieve, you're condemned. If you believe, you have been saved. Now, Three aspects of belief, and then we'll be through. Number one, 
I want to talk about this word belief for just a minute. Number one, intellectual. There's intellectual belief. Do you believe that Jesus lived? Do you believe that he died on a cross? Do you believe that if you ask him into your heart to forgive you of your sins, that he will in fact come in, forgive you of your sins, and save you and allow you to spend eternity in heaven? Do you believe intellectually what this Bible says is true about Jesus? If you do, you're one-third there. Then there's emotional belief. For lack of a better word, we'll say it's emotional belief. Do you desire to know Jesus Christ personally? Do you desire forgiveness of your sins? Do you want for your own self, a salvation experience with Jesus Christ? Do you want to be freed from sin, freed from death, and given abundant life in Jesus Christ? Do you want it for yourself? A little poem has been written that says, Your best resolutions must wholly be waived. Your highest ambitions be crossed. You need never think you'll ever be saved until you have learned that you're lost. Intellectual, emotional, thirdly, volitional, an act of your will. Now, turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 10, an act of your will. Belief is proven by your actions that you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. An act of your will by choosing. You can believe it in your head. You can want it, but you must choose to believe to be saved. You must make the choice personally. You don't ride anybody's coattails into the kingdom. You don't get there because your family was all saved and baptized and a part of the church. You're in the family of God because you have personally believed. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 13. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how they, shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Jesus said to them, go and preach the gospel. We talked about the Great Commission this morning. That word preach is the word for a herald, one who makes an announcement on behalf of a king. We are to go and herald the announcement of the coming king. We are to go and to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. It is a clear assigned task to us and we have before us in this scripture and in the Romans passage what a person has to do to come into the kingdom. On April the 14th, 1912, distress signals were heard in the North Atlantic from the Titanic. The SS Californian was the nearest ship of sea in the vicinity. Under a full head of steam, 
the Californian could have made it to the Titanic in an hour and a half. In plenty of time to have been there before the ship went down with over a thousand people on board. And yet the Californian never came. An hour and a half away from saving the people who were on board the Titanic with distress signals going out through that cold, bitter night, and yet the ship never moved. During the Senate investigation, Senator William Smith of Michigan asked the captain of the Californian, why didn't you sail to the scene of the accident when the wireless reached you? And the captain of the Californian shifted in his chair and said these words, we feared the icebergs and were lying motionless and we had no steam up. We feared the icebergs and were lying motionless and we had no steam up. Sounds an awful lot like the church, doesn't it? The world sends out its distress signals that they are lost and sinking. We have been told to rescue the perishing and care for the dying. And all the while, we lie motionless. No steam up. No fire in the boilers. No energy worked up. No motion. We fear the icebergs. We fear the obstacles. We fear the things that stand between us. And so we sit and we do nothing. 8,000 churches among Southern Baptists did that last year. For they did not baptize one person. You and I have been given clear, direct orders. This world is sending out a distress signal. This world is falling apart. And in that world, our orders are to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Would you pray with me, please? Someone has said, today we go to football games to do our shouting, to the movies to do our crying, and to the church to do our sleeping. My friends, if there was ever a time when this world needed the church to be a bright, shining light on a hill, if there was ever a time when this world needed the church to have a full head of steam and to come to the rescue, it is now. As we come to the end of this gospel, as we have looked in about 20 or 25 messages at the life of Christ and seen all the things that He has done, His power, His abilities, His love, His compassion, if it's not done anything else, it should motivate us that we have available to us the power of a risen Christ who wants, who desires to work in and through us if we'll just let Him. Would you avail yourself to Him tonight? Whatever it is that limits you tonight, whatever obstacle that you have tonight, would you see that things can be different for you not for the person next to you. They can be different for you tonight. 
You see, you just need to realize and recognize the fact and the power of the resurrection and then let it become a reality for you personally. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.